0: Someone's clapping on five.
1: I have no idea what's happening.
0: Two of us are clapping on four, and one of us is clapping, uh, is silently hearing the word clap in his head and then clapping on five.
2: It's all relative to the person, the person hearing it.
0: (laughs) I've got closed cups, baby. Yeah, I know. But it's people that wear beats.
1: Who wears beats?
0: No, I don't. I've got, uh, what do you call? Wilkins and uh, Bauer and Wilkins.
1: Oh no, I have Bauer and Wilkins. In fact, I bought a pair of Bauer and Wilkins desktop speakers this week. This nice. And uh, yeah, no, they're very nice. I thought I had this big dilemma. This is the podcast, by the way.
0: Oh, we so we're not going to clap again. No, 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 the clapping is done. We're just going to go with the oh the one, two, three, clap, clap.
1: I, I it, you know, I don't think it really matters at this point.
0: We're going with the Dave Brubeck clap.
1: <laughs> the jazz clap.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: <coughs> anyway, we digress because I bought these speakers and I needed some new desktop speakers and I could have bought a pair of kind of mid brand speakers for about two hundred pounds. Whereas my beloved B and Ws were gonna be about four hundred pounds, so obviously twice the price. And I thought, do I buy the sensible, cheaper option or the less sensible, expensive option? And what do I do? Because I thought, Wait, I'm wh-
0: gonna... why are you buying speakers? Are you running things through an amplifier?
1: No, it's just because I play music off my iMac a lot when I'm working. And, um, you know, and through I a stereo sound, yeah. So I thought, what am I going to do? So in the end, I thought, if the cheap ones, I'm going to look at these things every single day and regret that I bought the cheap ones. Of course. But I found a pair of BMWs, Refurb. So they're as new, but come from the refurb store for £100 off, and I'm very happy.
2: You, but you can use that argument to justify any purchase. Like, oh, I'm going to look at it every day, so I better get the best. I mean, you probably told yourself that to justify getting an Apple Watch, right? Well, I look at my hand every day, so I better get something really expensive to slap on my hand.
1: But now I regret buying the cheaper Apple Watch, and I wish that I bought the more expensive one. Because you look at that every day. Because I look at it every day.
2: What price can you put on your own wrist?
0: That's why I use uh, human skin condoms. What? Sure, they cost more. (laughs) There's a huge pause. (laughs) But I have to look at this thing every day. (laughs) Should we try the clap again?
1: (laughs) You have no idea how relevant the word clap is at this point.
0: Oh, yes. I I believe it means something uh, different in... uh, (laughs) No, it doesn't. It means the same. No, nah, nobody's ever given me the clap.
1: Anyway, I suppose that I ought to introduce the pair of you to our three listeners, especially Ian, because this is the start of the official bit. Okay, this is the part that you'd hear if this podcast was as good as something on the BBC. So this this is the intro. This is the build up. Are you ready for the big build up? Do it. Because my guests today are Jeremy Keith and Jeffrey Zeldman.
0: Hi, Ian. G- hey,
1: That's it, because I don't need to explain who you are or what you do, because frankly, nobody knows. Nobody knows what you do. I don't know what I do. (laughs) I'm hoping Jeffrey's actually going to make it through the next hour. You sound terrible.
0: You don't. uh, I thought Jeremy was a co-founder. I saw that he's he's a closed cover before striking. He's a hired help. It was something. It wasn't closed cover before striking, was it? uh, Oh, you mean my current job title? Yeah, it was like looks let's, let's looks check. larger current, in rear view mirror. My current job title
2: is fifty second fifty second level warrior mage. Vehicle sold separately.
0: That's what it was. Vehicle sold separately.
2: That's that's more like the tagline than the job title. Yeah, I I, I need to update it. I needed I need a new job title. It's been weeks. Do you know what's happening, guys? The kids
0: they don't get. The, it's been thirty years since advertising has been that corny. And so when you make a joke like that, or if you have an old tagline for something you do, a lot of people actually don't get it. You know the thing they say, oh, people don't know what a floppy disk icon is? They do. They know what it is, even though they haven't used a floppy disk the whole time they've been computing. But they really don't know what, like, the Morton Salt girl is or, you know, a tagline. Like, I I used to just say, friend of the Japanese children. That was my tagline.
2: Jeffrey Zeldman, friend of the Japanese children.
0: I Because it will... uh Well, there's lots of reasons I can't do that. By the way, you know who the friend of the Japanese children really was? Godzilla. No, Gamera. Oh. Close. Very close. There was that little pudgy boy. You've lost me completely. Have you seen the new Godzilla? Yes. Yeah, I
2: liked it. I liked it. I thought it dealt with scale really well.
1: We can talk about films all we like. Maybe a little great. bit great okay let's let 's
2: talk about we thoughts. had a
1: survey no, we had we had a survey and uh, and the three people that replied to the to the internet survey basically said that they 'd prefer if we left our kind of banter to the end part so that people can get to the business they like to get to the business part because it 's supposed to be unfinished business
2: it 's a bit late to be saying that now. How many minutes in are we?
1: nobody cares, but that 's the thing, so I think that we maybe we ought to uh, just leave our kind of um ramblings about films and TV till a little bit later. Because there are some things that I want to talk about, if that's okay. And the first thing I want to talk about, if we can, is I want to talk about your 100 words, Jeremy. Okay. I have to say, and I'm not just putting your buns, but you've been inspiring me to possibly think about writing a little bit more. I'm mean, I say possibly thinking about writing. That's not exactly... I'm not going to write. It's not inspired me to write at the moment, but it's inspired me to think about writing, which is almost as good. It's like almost... Inspired to think about exercise.
2: It's like I'm I'm, in, I'm inspiring pro- procrastination.
1: That's could almost be a show title, to be honest. Inspiring procrastination.
0: It's like morning pages for blogging, right? Well, in the sense that it's a discipline.
2: Yeah, it's the repeated repeated exercise that that makes it interesting. So it's a hundred words for a hundred days. And this is part of a, a bigger exercise happening at Clear Left that James Bates, one of the designers, kicked off. This hundred days thing is not new. People have been doing that for a while at various places or on their personal sites. You, you pick some exercise. Doesn't matter what it is. Drawing something or writing something or making something could be big, could be small. Doesn't matter. The important thing is you repeat it every day for a hundred days. I mean, it could be as simple as you draw a circle every day for a hundred days. Um, because what's interesting is they're is the repeating it and, and keeping it going. So a whole bunch of us at Clear Left started doing the 100 days exercise. I think we're down to three that are still actually doing it every day. We've had people, you know, lose days and then get discouraged and think they can't catch up. So there was actually a decree issued today that if you fall behind, you don't have to make up the shortfall. So you can miss a few days and you're allowed to jump back in and, you know, if you miss... Five days from day 55 onwards, you can jump in on day 60. You don't have to do day 56, day 57, day 58, whatever. Um, so that's the, the broader exercise is pick something, do it every day for a hundred days. So I was pretty sure I was going to do something to do it writing, um, for a hundred days. And I decided, well, a hundred days, why don't I do a hundred words every day and nice. started doing it? What's interesting, a bunch of people have said they're, they're enjoying it. They're enjoying reading it. But they don't realize until I point out that it's exactly one hundred words every day. They think I'm writing like I... up to a hundred words or around oh. about hundred words.
1: I was going to ask that whether it was exactly a hundred
0: words or a minimum or maximum. It's a hundred. That's, what? That's, that's, what? What? that's that's the whole tough. point. Is
2: that's what makes it that's difficult.
0: Tough. Is it exactly? It's like tweets or haiku. Yeah, actually, tweets it gives me the like like idea. It's like the tweet discipline where you have to fill no, 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 140 exactly points. like
2: I, Twitter is. Up to 140 characters. I want to make a Twitter client where you're only allowed post if it's exactly 140 characters.
0: I often try to write that way.
2: So that's what I'm doing is exactly 100 words every day. Um, and that's where the challenge is, 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 is in making it exactly 100 words, either padding it or cutting it down or, you know, killing your darlings, cutting out that clever little aside because it makes too many words and trying to get encapsulate something in 100 words is, uh, <sighs> tricky.
0: The thing Hemingway said: "Cut out all the smart parts. cut out all the cut out all the good parts." Was that it? Cut out all the parts you're proud of. It was something like that.
1: Well, what I like about your 100 words so far, and I'm even more impressed now that I know that it is actually 100 words, is that, and this is what's got me more inspired about doing writing again, but without the restrictions of maybe of the hundred words is that you don't necessarily have to write something grand i mean i'm looking at a post here from a couple of days ago where you just talk about what happened in leamington spa and the fact that you were you know mucking about talking about science and nature and puppets and dummies and musicians in the movies and that kind of thing so it's not as if you feel that you have to be publishing something which is going to be i don't know noteworthy because i have this sometimes i think to myself you know i'd really like to I'd like to write about something but then I put all of this self-imposed pressure on myself yeah, where yeah. I think do I have to do I have to write something that's good that people might like or people might link to and I used to before years ago you know when we first started out you and me and we started out you know with websites and shit I used to write about all kinds of dumb stuff and I didn't really care and I've lost that habit I've fallen out of that habit
2: I think that's a real shame I think it's a real shame that people self-censor that way You know, the thing like, oh, you start thinking about an audience. You start thinking about what people might want to hear. I just think it's, it's your website. You should, you should write whatever the hell you want. Do you remember, do you remember back in the day, let's start reminiscing when Dunstan used to have his blog.
1: Oh, I remember Dunstan's blog.
2: He would write about web stuff. He'd write about CSS, but he would also write about his dog, Poppy, right? His awesome dog, Poppy, post videos of Poppy. This was back before videos of puppies were a, a big deal on the internet. He was way ahead of the curve. In fact, he had a selfie stick for his dog. Now that I think about it, he was definitely ahead of the times.
0: That's crazy.
2: He hadn't posted anything about his dog, Poppy, for a while. And I saw him and I was like, Hey, Dunstan, how come there hasn't been so much about the dog? And he's like, well, I got emails from people and the emails are basically, you know, more CSS, less dogs. And
0: I just yeah, yeah, I was going,
2: yeah, yeah. well, screw them. It's your website. You know, and, and the idea that, that anyone is self-censoring because they feel, well, who's going to be interested in that? You know, you're it's your website. The whole point is that it's a representation of you. And I get that all the time. Yeah, but what I love about your writing over the years, I think, you know, yes, you've done all these wonderful things for web standards, and that's great, but my glamorous life has been the stuff that's really stuck with me. That's the kind of stuff that I'm so glad you wrote that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, so my glamorous life, if people don't know, it's like... I guess kind of a diary, but usually very brief. And it's, it's certainly not, it's just like little glimpses, like little, it's almost like little shorts. Yeah. Uh, I think the first one was, uh, that my, the bank machine ate my card. I remember that. And then the lady, and the lady behind me said worked for me. And I just wondered, like, why do people do that? If you're having a bad day, they act impatient that you're taking too long at the machine because it ate your card, and you're talking to the bank about trying to get your card back. Then she plugs, puts her, and I said, you probably shouldn't use this machine, I think it's broken. She plugged it in, (laughs) she got her money, and then she went, worked for me. Wow.
1: (laughs) And I really (laughs)
2: enjoyed reading that, (laughs) even though that's something, you know, specific to you. And this is something I've heard from, you know, musicians and filmmakers and authors who will say, it's really strange, but when you make something that's intensely personal, and you think to yourself, No one else in the world will be able to relate to this because this only makes sense to me. I'm the only person who under, you know, who has the backstory to this. You make something intensely personal. That's actually the stuff that turns out to have universal appeal. That turns out to be the the hit song that everybody can relate to. That turns out to be the the hit book that everyone buys. So this idea of self censoring because oh, I don't think people are interested in this because it's personal to me, probably turned out not to be a, a valid way of self centering, anyway because it turns out people want to connect with that personal stuff
0: i agree and there there are definitely people who do but you know to be fair there is pressure that i think any of us all of us feel from people there's a certain kind of person who feels very entitled to be entertained or though even though you're doing this for free on your own time they only want you to be like an educator and they don't want you to talk about you know your divorce or whatever it's like and you know, and they'll freely say that. Um, and there are other people who defend you and say, "No, I, I loved reading about the guy's divorce." But screw those people who say that. That's that's my attitude.
1: I used to write about CSS a lot, and I've been doing a lot more actual writing of CSS over the last few weeks. I've been getting really heavily involved in a bunch of projects, and. I've been writing a lot of CSS. We've been doing a huge amount of prototyping on a couple of really big projects. And I've been flexboxing the hell out of these prototypes because, you know, why not? I mean, <laughs> I don't care about production code. I can flexbox till, you know, to my heart's content on these particular sites. And I've learned an enormous amount about flexbox and a few other things in the last few weeks. And. In the same way that you know, maybe five, ten years ago, I would have written a blog post about how to explain this kind of stuff, and oh, here's a cool thing that I found you could do with Flexbox. Now I think to myself, do you know what? It's probably on CSS tricks.
2: Yeah, but you should what's, write what's it anyway. You should write it anyway. I'll tell you the point. So I've had exactly this conversation at work with Charlotte, who started at Clearleft about six months ago, and I was encouraged, you know, every time you learn something new, write it down. Write it you know on your own blog, cross-post it to Clearleft blog if you like. Just write it down. And she said exactly the, the same thing. So what's the point? It's already out there. Somebody else has already done it. And you're right. It's probably Chris Coyer, right? Somebody's already done it. Um, and I pointed out just because somebody's already done it doesn't mean they're going to explain it the same way you would or see it through, see it through your lens. And in fact, your lens is probably more valuable because you just learned it because you just figured it out. And I remember this from many, many years ago, the early 2000s when like, I had done the whole CSS thing, the whole web standards thing. I got religion, right, and got converted. I was bored with CSS by about 2012, 2013. I was moving on to all this JavaScripty stuff. Meanwhile, Andy Budd is just starting to get into the whole CSS thing. And he starts blogging all these little posts about CSS. And I look at them and think, why would you blog that? That seems so obvious to me. Like, everyone knows that already, right? And it turned out, no, you read the comments and people are like, thank you. Thank you for saying this. Or, oh, now I get it. Oh, okay, right? So it's completely valid to write something from your own perspective. And in fact, now Charlotte has started doing that. And I just read through a post that she wrote um, just the other day about Flexbox. and. Well, it was to do with Flexbox. It was to do with something that Hayden Pickering was writing about on a list apart. But reading it through her lens and her explanation of it is actually what made it click with me. And I said that to her. I so said, actually, I'm really glad you wrote this down because your perspective you know, worked for me uh, and it'll work for other people too. It doesn't matter that what the, the information that you're writing down might already be out there in some other form, but the lens that you're seeing it through and the way that you explain how it clicked for you is probably going to make it click for someone in a similar situation, and a similar level of learning. So even if it's been written 10 times, 20 times before, it's still worth writing it down. Also, it's still worth writing it down for you, as in future you. You in six months, you in 12 months, when you're trying to remember, how did, how did I do that thing on that project? And you can use your own website to look it up and go, oh yeah, that's how I explained it to myself, right? That's how I explained it to make sense to me. If someone else finds that interesting, great. But just purely as a note to self, it's worth writing that stuff down.
1: Well, back, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, when I used to write CSS, and people would care about what I thought about CSS, which is not today. I would think to myself, I have to write almost a tutorial, you know, I have to, you know, those example files and, you know, we all did this kind of stuff and sometimes we did it on our own sites and sometimes it went on a list apart or smashing magazine or wherever, but they were quite big affairs. Um, whereas, now I'm thinking, do you know what? Actually, a hundred words is the perfect kind of rough size for a little bit of something. Cause there's something that happens to me with me with work every day that I could, if I wanted to sit down with a cup of tea or gin and tonic in the evening and actually just write a hundred words. There's always something, you know, we fired a client last week. Have, have I said anything? No. Um, actually, well, really- sometimes you can. Well, I know, but I mean, I could talk about this particular thing, but you know, right. there's, there's usually something that happens every day that I could write about. And having the little framework of a 100 words.
0: My daughter was asking me, uh, she was writing in a diary-type book that I'd gotten her, and we started talking about diaries, and she said, well, that just seems ridiculous. Why would I keep it? I said, diaries just seem awful. I said, no, I, I wish uh, she started to write. No, that's what it was. She was writing a diary, and she didn't want me to come in, and then she said, uh, is that stupid that I'm doing this? And I said, no, I did it when I was in college, and I wish I'd done it my whole life. It would be wonderful to be able to look back at who I was then and see, like, am I still making the same mistakes? Was I naive about people? Am I still naive about people? Did I feel entitled? Was I selfish but thought I was right? Like, there's so much stuff you could see. And also if see how much, just, you
2: know, how much you've learned, how far you've come,
0: right? And actually you've learned, how much you've grown. It, and also, I loved what you said a minute ago, Jeremy. I thought, like, wow, the listeners have their money's worth. That was a wonderful, like, you do it for you and you do it for others. I mean, you could say... Charles Dickens could have said, why should I write about Oliver Twist? You know, the story of a boy growing up, that's been done. And Charles Dickens wrote about seven different books about children growing up, and every one was unique, and many of them are like burned into people's consciousness forever. And, and even the ones that weren't so good, they were Apprentice Works, and that's okay too. Uh, I think you also write because if you don't do that, you can't articulate to your colleagues. When someone says, why did you make this decision? It's really hard to know what to say.
2: Yeah, it really does help form your talk.
0: And Andy, I know, like, I have the same, I I don't know if it's a problem, but when I was, like, head deep in front-end code, 12 hours a day, every day, from, like, 1995 till about 2003, 2004... Like, there was nobody that I thought knew more about it than me, or if they did, they knew more about some aspect. But I really just, like, I had, and I could always, if someone would say, you're giving this talk at a conference, can you send me a tip? I'd go, hey, here's five. And and yesterday, uh, Toby said, can you send give me a tip for the newsletter? And I had to really ponder, do I have a tip? Do I have anything worth even talking about? Uh, there's this thing where as you get more experienced, you sort of, Get distance from the material and start to think you're not learning every day or you're not learning the same things. You guys are still very much in front end code, but I'm really not. I work with people who do it now. So like, I would never hire me to do the thing that at one time I considered myself an expert in, right?
2: Uh, on that subject of feeling like you're not, you're not progressing, like you're not learning stuff. Um, that's why I think Andy, that's why you should be writing like, one little thing I learned today, or one little thing I did today, because it's the cumulative effect that makes you see the the progress that you make. So something I started recently at Clear Left was up on, on one of the walls. I've, I've I've made a grid. I'm calling it the skills grid, and I've got names across the top. of The front end developers at Clear Left. So there's Charlotte, Mark, Graham, me. Uh, and then in any of those columns, when someone feels like they've they've they solved a problem, or they they used some particular technique. Let's say flexbox and they got their head round Flexbox. You write the word Flexbox on a post-it note and you slap it in in your column. And it serves two purposes. One is that if one of the other developers has a question about, say, Flexbox, well, now they know who to come to, right? They go to the person Mm -hmm. who's put Flexbox in their column. But the other thing is for you to see your column grow over time and see that, oh yeah, I am actually making progress. I didn't feel like I learned anything on that project, but when I look back on the skills grade, I see that actually there's all these little things that add up to, yeah, little tips, little little handy little uh, vignettes. Um, so making it visible, you know, even the stuff that you think, that's not worth recording, that's not worth, you know, documenting. There's a cumulative effect to documenting all of that stuff and being able to pull it out and be able to point to it and say, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, on some project six months ago. Here, let me pull that up.
1: I think that I've also suffered from a complete lack of or loss of confidence or almost kind of identity or personality through the website, through my writing on the website anyway. Because, you know, I didn't always just used to write about CSS. You know, I would post Funny stuff. You know, I would post experiences, but some of the stuff was funny, and I don't do any of that anymore. And I feel sad that I don't do that kind of stuff. I mean, I was talking today.
0: We've, did we've you, got. Did you have a traumatic experience? Did someone attack you for it and make it seem not worth doing?
1: um y- Yes, there's been lots of those kind of things over the last few years that have kind of turned me off from kind of, you know, doing a lot of stuff as much as I did publicly. Um, and we don't want to get into that really, but. Um, well, oh, I certainly don't want to get into that today anyway. Maybe another day. For example, we've been, um, we, we, we scheduled things badly. We, we had a scheduling schnafu, which meant that we had to finish some work, which means we're, we're doubling up on jobs at the moment. This 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 week here, we are doubling up on jobs, which means that we're a little bit like, do you remember those old 1970s sitcoms where somebody would promise to have Christmas dinner with two people? And yeah. he would like, you know. Archie
0: would take out Betty and Veronica. Yeah, and the that's the kind movie. of
1: thing, right? And then you'd sit there, you'd sit there for the starter, and then you'd say, oh, excuse me, I need to go take a phone call. And then you'd run around to the restaurant around the corner and sit down with the other person, or you'd eat the other Christmas dinner right that's what we're like right now we are like finishing something having a skype call going off and working with somebody else it's like it's like exactly like that and it's funny and i explained this to somebody today and i thought you know as i was explaining it you should write it down 70s sitcom i'm thinking i should write this down yeah yeah. I imagine that a lot of people that don't manage their time well, and I certainly don't manage my time well most of the time, feel exactly that way. So maybe I can say something funny and, you know, whatever, achieve exactly. something. I just
2: Right. You for you it's this totally personal thing. This 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 is you know, only relates to me, but I bet if you publish it people will go, Oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Right? That would be okay. a universal
0: appeal. Okay, so as an example, usually I'm very busy and I work in this shared spa- space and I share some space with people I do projects with. And yesterday I was starting, I was feeling sick and uh, it, it was the middle of the afternoon and I could have gone home, but I was paying the babysitter to get my daughter and I didn't want to be home when they got there. That would seem weird. And so I stayed and uh, I watched a, a program I like on Showtime on my computer with Showtime on demand kind of thing. Tim said, you know, We need images such and such, and and then I worked for like three hours. Now, I could have left because I wasn't feeling well, but I I stayed in the studio, and sometimes just by sticking around, something falls in your lap. So even if you manage time badly, and even if you think, I might as well go home, or I might as well take a bath, I don't feel well, but I was like, you know, I'm leaving town soon for a conference, and I don't want to... uh, don't want to miss the opportunity to get all my work done if I can. I actually sat and wasted time in front of two busy people that I share this space with. And I thought, wow, I hope they don't think I'm a jerk sitting here watching the show. Uh, I didn't mean, have headphones on. It's not like they could hear it. But because I sat there and watched the show, then when they were ready and had something for me to work on, I was like, I could jump all over it. So sometimes just sticking around is really important. And I never knew that when I was working for other people.
2: Just just showing up is half the job, right? Just showing
0: up. I, there's sometimes stuff doesn't get done even if you're not the one doing it unless you're there while they do it. There's a
1: word for it where something seems to be such a big deal, like, you know, cleaning out the garage or whatever, that you know, you just don't want to start. There's a word for that
0: kind. Yeah, of yeah, thing. yeah. Pro- 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 procrastinate.
1: Is that actually the word because Jeremy said that earlier and sounded clever.
2: There's probably there's probably a German word for that uh, that feeling of facing a task that seems insurmountable.
1: I'm going through this thing with the with our website. I'm, I'm having it, it sort of in my spare time. I'm redesigning our website, and I'm not going to give away what the new site's going to do or look like or anything else. Apes? Surprise.
0: Will there be apes? Uh, there
1: will be apes. But what I've been really wrestling with right now uh, recently is the portfolio. And I think Ugh. a lot of designers feel this, right? Your portfolio is like, oh, I need to add some things to my portfolio. It's six months or a year out of date. I've got to write a case study. Oh, God, that's such a huge job. I've got to find all the assets. And all of a sudden, it's like updating your portfolio which should be the simplest thing in the world for a design studio all of a sudden becomes this huge bloody task and actually i've been thinking jesus what are you talking about Andy? you know we're making creative work every single day why are you not publishing to the portfolio three times a week
2: we have this at clear left with case studies it's like oh yeah when you finish that project just remember to put in the case study and the case oh my god the case study this great big thing we have to do and it's this big monolith standing in our way it's like it should be it should be it's all the same thing we say
0: we psych ourselves out. Yeah, But there's another thing. The more you know, the harder things become. Like I, you were talking about writing every day and writing a hundred words from like 1995 until 2007 or 2008 blogged every day, like, you know, and for at least an hour and there was tons of things. And it was the easiest thing in the world. And it's only as I became more self-conscious and more of a successful professional that I was like, can't talk about that. Or, or this doesn't, this needs to seem more meaningful or, you know, so, or I can just do that on Twitter. There's no sense in my blogging it on my site when I can just do it on Twitter.
1: Exactly.
0: There's like lots of stuff happening. There's, there's entropy to the personal site is another whole thing.
2: Yeah. But I mean, those are all like little, little excuses little reasons to, to procrastinate reasons not to do things. You can find a million reasons not to, not to do something or, and a lot of them are to do with fear, right? I'm afraid that that yeah. people will laugh at me. I'm afraid people will, will realize I'm a fraud because I'm talking about something that's totally simple and uh, I should know this stuff already.
1: I think having something as a habit, writing as a habit, publishing a portfolio as a habit, is got to be the way to go for me because I need to get back into... This podcast has been my only kind of you know non-work creative outlet for, you know, the, like the last two years. And, you know, I used to enjoy doing the other stuff. So what we haven't mentioned, which is worth mentioning in this week of all weeks, is that last Sunday, as we're recording this, was the 20th anniversary of
0: Zeldman.com. Congratulations. Now Jeffrey Jeff. Zeldman Presents. Thank you. It was It's the 20th anniversary of my website. It, technically, Zeldman.com didn't exist for another year. It was at a tilde address for the first year. So it's the 20th anniversary of my having that site. By, you see what I'm saying? But it wasn't yep. called zeldman.com at first because uh, it was inch.com slash tilde Jeff Z. By the way, after I wrote about it, one of the sysadmins said, I'm pretty sure I was your sysadmin at Internet Channel. I didn't know that because, but remember how mysterious the Internet was when we started? And like, like it was so cool that someone was a sysadmin. It was just like, that was amazing to me.
1: My website, my first website address was a tilde as well. I can remember it was globalnet.com slash users slash tilde malarkey or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Have you seen the tilde project by Paul Ford? Yeah. No, what's that? Bringing tilde back, baby. He's bringing it back and he he set up a a shell account and you upload your uh, files. Of course, because I'm too busy, I immediately signed up for it and then didn't upload anything because I reserved my Jeff... I think, it's, I think it's Zeldman now, not Jeff Z. Wouldn't be Jeff Z. Jeff Z was what Inch gave me, right? Uh, I had a hit counter, guys. Do you remember those? Did you ever Ooh, see those?
1: Yeah, no, we had a hit counter. Oh, and yeah. And we had a guest book in the early days. A
0: guest book. Yeah, I had that too. Did you have a little
2: animated under construction guy digging forever?
0: I made stuff like that as a sort of uh, joke on that stuff. I like slampooned that stuff. My icons were in response to all those crappy icons. So of course, I the
2: uh, st- steal my icons. I remember. And pardon this. my icons. Pardon my yeah yeah. And steal these graphics. Yeah, steal these graphics. Yeah. I'm yeah, doing
0: yeah. actually. Uh, Webchick, who now has a do uh, you remember Webchick from the uh, 1995 from the uh, Rebecca Malamud from the uh, 1995 Internet World's Fair that she did with Carl Malamud. Uh, she's got a um, a gallery. In the Portland area, and they're doing this retrospective on old internet art. And I actually made—well, I have these big prints of uh, of those little icons. Nice, right? Like like six thousand times bigger.
2: I I still have those icons on my site. If you if you you, if you do, you, I know right. right. You choose the Zeldman right. theme, and you get
0: those icons. And it it's the Zeldman theme from two thousand three. It's like time stops there.
1: I am actually having a look at this right now. It's the third, fourth one down.
0: The two black lines. Yeah, I did like that. Adactio.com. Wait, where's your, uh, choose the theme? See, C- C- Zeldman. Fourth one down. Yeah, you got the, uh, the orange background color wrong. <laughs> not, not the background color graphic. The, uh, the, well, we,
1: yeah. we could prove this. If we could do a side by side comparison, but I'm not aware that there are any of the All old my designs of Zeldman.com. Yes, Where are they? they Let me are. Guess them.
0: What you would have to do to get to them. Are you ready? Go to Zeldman.com, read the first entry, uh, and click the back button or, or click the previously and just keep clicking previously. You have to go through about three years of the current design. Maybe more because I've sort of applied the current design to some of the older WordPress stuff. You go back and back until you hit the end of WordPress, uh, which is around 2007. And then the very next entry when you hit the button is hand-spun HTML from the mid 2000s, which I was still doing because it made it very easy to update the design every, every time I got, you know, a hankering. So. I th- and I think actually, let's do this. Let's do ze- type zeldman.com/slash fifteen years, fifteen year anniversary. In what a in,
1: fascinating in, podcast this is! Let's type three of us type URLs.
0: Zeldman.com/slash no 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 in search in DuckDuckGo or Google or whatever. Zeldman.com/fifteen year anniversary. I'm typing that. And that should be. Should we
1: keep old versions of designs available? Because I remember Jer- uh, Jason Santamaria and others. I can remember, I think, Sean Inman, um, every time they did a redesign, which we did back
0: in the day every two or three years. I just didn't do the thing that Jason did where you where you click thr- through and it's... Uh...
1: I wish that I'd done that. I mean, none of the old versions of the Stuff site or my blog exists now. But how important is it to have these things available? I mean, as design um, artifacts, should we do this? Should we we make a point of actually, for posterity's sake, keeping our old designs available?
0: Nothing's important. We're all going to die. It doesn't matter. But it might be good for future archivists to have examples of stuff. So
1: how important is it, Jeremy, to keep old archives of designs like this for i don't know for posterity's sake because nothing of the things that i made back in the day none of the early stuff and nonsense designs exist in any kind of format that we can read now and i used to think that it didn't really matter because who the hell cared but i care now and i wish i could look back at some of that stuff well i
2: think it's entirely up to the person who made the thing It's it's a personal decision by the person who makes it however I would point out that it's kind of like the situation Jeffrey was talking about with uh, the diary. How now, you know, oh, I wish I had kept a diary. I wish I had uh, documented this stuff back then. It's kind of the same. If you don't keep this stuff around now, then it's going to be too late if you change your mind in 10 years and go, oh, I actually wish I had that version of my website that I could pull up and take a look at it now. Um, And so you might as well, store, right? You might as well, uh, keep a copy just in case in the future you decide, uh, you, you're going to want to have access to that. But I do think it's a personal decision on the person on behalf of the person, but this is why it's so important that it, that it should be in the hands of the person who created it. And this is why I worry when I see people, you know, make their, their place on the web doesn't belong to them when their place on the web belongs to third parties. So they're like, yeah, my, my medium columns and my tweets and my,
0: Unless you started on your site, you can totally, you can, anything I've written for Medium, I've written on my site first. Yeah, give yeah, give, give all copies. those
2: places copies of if, your stuff, sure. But um, you want to make sure that, you know, you, you have access to and and you could save the canonical copy, which would be on your own site. But yeah, I think it's completely a personal decision by the person. But I do think you don't know the future value of something, right? Something that might seem trivial and unimportant today might actually turn out to be really important in 20 years' time.
1: I wanted to do a screenshot of what, I mean, I'm saying this in inverted commas, the famous version of my blog where I had the color version for Firefox and the black and white version for IE. Yeah, I remember that. Um, Those files do not exist anymore. I cannot find them for the life of me. The only copy that I can find of those two versions of my website is actually in my book printed because I don't even know where the screenshot of the artwork went to. Um, sure. So there we have, you know, there we have a website archived in the book, which I never thought I'd be happy about.
0: You know, that page I mentioned before, zeldman.com slash daily slash 505 gshtml I'm on it now. Yeah. If you click previous reports at the bottom, you'll see all these different uh formatting ideas, the way I handle different kinds of material, the markup I use to format different kinds of material. Like it's actually pretty complete and it's, it's, uh you know, it's, it's very small and it's fixed width. So it's, absurd by today's standards, but given what we all thought we were doing at the time, it's kind of nice. I'm kind of not too unhappy with it. I think um, it still looks pretty good. And it's all here archived. And I think having it archived forever is kind of nice. There were blogger templates that Doug Bowman and Dan Cederholm and Doug, um, several, Todd Dominey and I, other people, worked on that just don't exist anymore. or Some some of them exist and people are using them in these messed up ways, but you can't get to blogger it. I mean, you know how it is when a company buys something and then they kind of just slowly wreck it? Oh, don't get Jeremy started. Nobody, I think if you're a company and you buy stuff, then it's not a, a decision that's a personal decision. Then you're morally obliged to like, if there were users who were using these templates, even if you're going to update them later, There should always be access to that stuff, and you should keep it working as long as possible. And, and and of course, we know that what actually happens all the time is that a service that you rely on, but it's not yours, but you pour your heart into it, right? You know, like writing down all your favorite restaurants in Brighton so that your friends can visit and, like, using this app that lets you do that. And then one day it's just gone. And all that work that you did is gone. And but but so before they go, they make your own they, website they write a time? blog
2: post. They write a blog post saying how excited they are to be uh, to be joining acquired. Google or Facebook acquired, and they thank us. They thank us for joining them on their incredible journey.
0: My favorite was the one I won't say who. I mean, I really had a lot of respect for these folks as designers and developers, and and they actually closed their shop to go to fa- the two owners closed their company with like twenty five employees so they could go take jobs at Facebook. I've ranted about this particular <laughs> instance like, on the podcast and, already. And, and they wrote about it at such length that everyone thought it was an aqua hire at first. Yeah, one thought it, everyone thought everyone was going to Facebook. It, yeah. And it looked like that and it was so long that it was almost like they knew no one will really read this. It's too long. Let's bury the lead at the very end. And it was like and then we killed everyone. It was it was like they had this lovely and Facebook and Data and challenges and opportunities and journey and all. And at the bottom, like we f- everyone and and like and and pissed on their bodies.
2: <laughs> I read one good shutdown post because they're all. I mean, some of them are exactly they could come from a template, right? And we're, we're today we're excited to announce. Da da da. In fact, there's a Tumblr blog: Our Incredible Journey that keeps track oh of my all God. of these, these shutdowns, right? Because the blog posts always read the same. There is one that stands out as being different, and that was from Readmill. Readmill was a startup in Berlin. And yes. they got acquired by Dropbox, but they did not say, hey, we've been acquired. This is great news, everybody. We've been acquired by Dropbox. By the way, we're shutting down and you've got 30 days to get your data out. It was really bad news. We just can't do this anymore. It didn't work out. We're really sorry. Um, and it, by the way we've got acquired by Dropbox and that's where we're going to work now. But it was the most honest shutdown blog post I've ever seen. Uh, Every other one just seems to be from a template.
0: They're, they're, they're templated the same way. Like we regret any inconvenience this may cause. Like we are sorry that our train ran over a pedestrian this morning, killing the father of five. And (sighs) we regret any inconvenience this may have caused. It's like, Wow. Any inconvenience? Really? You regret?
1: I kind of expected this conversation to go wildly off topic, and I haven't been disappointed.
0: Uh, what's, what's the topic? I don't think to it be? is off topic, though. Yeah, what's we're the talking topic, about right? ownership. Well, okay, see, so, we, so Jeremy the to- is in charge. I think charge the topic of- is
1: longevity. I think is is our general topic, and this is okay. very
0: much
2: related to that. Very much related. Exactly. You're choosing, you might you know choose today to to put something online at a third party. And maybe assume that, well, because everyone keeps telling you, the internet never forgets, right? The internet never forgets. And so you assume that this thing you're putting on whatever third-party startup or big company is going to be online forever. And then you end up getting surprised when it gets taken down and they write the blog post thanking you for joining them on their incredible journey. There's a mismatch there.
1: It is related, of course, to your longevity on adactio.com and, of course, 20 years of, of Jeffrey... Writing on his website. Um, rather than posting on a I mean, I can just imagine if you'd have put some stuff onto what GeoCities. Oh, were my, for. my
0: great, the, some of the best things I ever wrote were for like Adobe. They're gone. Mm-hmm. And, and for PDN pics and they're gone. Macworld, they're gone. Everything I wrote for the stable, legitimate companies, everything on my, my shitty little blog, that's still there. Anything I wrote for professionals, media professionals, that's all gone. Because they don't, they they run out of money and they just close. You know, the people working there get f***ed. it's how it is. So yeah, having, e- even if you can't write HTML, even if you just start a Tumblr, like, well no, even then. No, even good. that. No, that's no good. Nope, nope. You got to be able to have your own account somewhere, even if you just FTP into that account. And, and if you're using, uh, if you're using, uh, a CMS of any kind, you have to be able to export your data so that you could put it somewhere else. If, if, you know, if one day WordPress, God forbid, went away or something like that, you'd still have your stuff.
2: The, the tension is between the, the ease of publishing that you get from third party tools like, yeah, writing on Medium or writing on Twitter or writing on, on, on some platform that's owned by someone else. They, they do, you know, win on, on bar- on lowering the barrier to entry and getting you writing something quickly and publishing something quickly but then they lose on the long-term thing of of holding on to that and having a stable url that you'll be able to come back to in the future
0: medium is uh not really it's not really that it's a network where you'll get more attention
2: oh, i think it changed last week Me- medium is medium is something else now ev-, ev wrote a blog post and uh mediums changed. no
0: but that's really what it was where i asked i asked a friend who was writing there like why You have your own site. You have your own site's blog. You have your own, you know, I have a magazine if you want to write about design. Why are you writing about design and medium? Medium's not about design. And he said, because that's where people's eyes are. That's where people will see it. And it's kind of addictive to see all that, you know. And it's interesting. It depends what you're publishing. If I publish something a normal piece at Zelman.com and then republish it at medium. Medium is usually the place where it gets the most uptake.
2: Yeah, if you if you're if you're like farming, then yeah, sure. To go for it. Like if you're if you're milking the udders of the internet to get plus ones and stars and I'm not and trying to get plus ones and stars. I'm sure trying to get to readers. To
0: I'm trying okay, right. So because you don't write to persuade others about anything. You don't give impassioned talks about the long now and the long HTML because you don't really care what other developers do and you don't really have opinions about how you No, know, to should be honest, I design. really don't. Sure. I really I, mean, I write
2: I'm, for myself and if someone else is interested that's good. I'm writing for myself today and and myself in the future.
0: But anyway, to get back purely to my to point. From
1: a selfish point of view though, why why would I want all my Google juice? to go to a Medium post rather than a post on my own website.
0: Okay, I, I, If I had finished my statement, what I would have said was that when I wrote my 20th anniversary piece, uh, the traffic on Zeldman.com was huge. And when I republished it at Medium, very little traffic, very little uptake. Mostly what people highlighted there was anything where I talked about networks. So they highlighted the parts about it that reflected on Medium, basically. So it really depends what your content is. But, uh, well, are you looking for Google juice? Right? Are you looking for uh, ad views? I know you're not. Uh, or are you looking to get your thoughts in front of as many people as possible? If you read Cameron Cozen's article about orbital content three or four years ago in a list apart, you know that. I mean, this is the way it is. Some people are going to read your stuff at your site. Some are going to read it in RSS. Some are going to read it uh, at an, at at Facebook. And if you're not on Facebook, then you're choosing not to meet those readers. Right. If some are good, some are going to only follow a Twitter link. So if you choose not to use Twitter, I don't know anyone who doesn't. But if you were to choose it, I know people with more, more moral quandaries about Facebook. But, you know, wherever you go. And, and, and then Google for a while was like you, you have to use you have to use Google Plus or we or you'll lose search engine placement. Right. So, but why do we care about that stuff? Well, it's really just about distributing ideas. If I think I want everyone to come to Zeldman.com and book, it is, bookmark it as their homepage, then I'm in trouble because that's probably going away as a reality. But if I think, uh, I want to share ideas in, in as many channels as will help me do that, uh, so that I can communicate with others and maybe get better feedback from them, maybe get a better idea in return from them. But if, if you want to archive that idea, if you want that idea
2: to be archived, then you do need to put it on your own website. If you're Absolutely. only talking about the here and Absolutely. now, then sure, you can just get a better conversation somewhere else. But if it's about the long term... I always
0: start on my website. Yeah, and that's great. Uh, let's assume, start on your website. It's like Tontic doesn't even tweet. He tweets on his website and then sends it to Twitter.
2: That's what I do now.
0: Right? Okay. I, all, all my you tweets have to be kind of a genius to account. be able to do that.
2: Yeah, and this, this gets back to my point, is that these third-party services provide better tools and better experience and lower barrier-to-entry publishing... But then they compromise on the long-term thing, the archiving of that over time. Whereas if you have your own website, then you get to archive over time. But actually, you, you now have this huge barrier to entry with, well, do you need to know HTML? Do you need to know how to install a CMS? Do you need to ha- pay right. your hosting fees? Uh, you know, all the, all the admin stuff that goes with it. And there's definitely a tension there between, you know, ease of use, uh, versus, you know, long-term thinking.
0: Do you remember when a list apart went away? For two years, and it had to be at a listapart.zeldman.com. Do you know the story of that? Oh yeah.
1: No, but I do remember it coming back.
0: So here's the here's the story. It's very simple. Um, so listapart, uh, different people would host it for free because they believed in it. That was nice. And at one point, Glenn Davis's cool uh, project, Cool. Glenn Davis had created Cool site of the day <laughs> from way back, and. He'd gone on and started his own company called Project Cool. And, um, I remember that he was one of the leaders and co-founders of the web standards project. So he said, Hey, why don't we host the web standards project? And hey, Zeldman, why don't you host a list park here too? Great, Glenn. I love it. That's a great idea. So that's what we did. And then, uh, when they sold Project Cool got acquired, um, a well-known publishing company. I won't say who. Um, and when they bought, They assumed that everything on the, on the server was, was part of what they had bought, even though I'm sure there was papers clearly specifying what was and wasn't theirs. So they assumed that the web standards project was something they had bought, and they assumed that a list apart was something they had bought. Neither was true, you know, but, uh, the next thing that happened was they called network solutions. Who was the red domain registrar and said, well, we're the new owners and we're, and here's our tech guys address and blah, blah, blah. And they took me off. So I no longer had access to either of those projects. And for two and a half years, and and I, I couldn't do anything. I was just like, right? You're an independent publisher. I, I had no power and they were a big publishing company and network solutions was very happy to please them without ever contacting me without ever even calling and saying, we just got this call from this new owner. Is that legit? I don't know. Maybe they had paperwork. I don't know what they did. So um, how we eventually got it back was that uh, there was a conference coming up, which this publishing company was running. It was their conference, and it was going to be in New Orleans. And the speakers included Dory Smith of the Web Standards Project, Jeff Veen of the Web Standards Project, Glenn Davis of the Web Standards Project, Steve uh, Champion of the Web Standards Project, me, uh, a couple other people from the Web Standards Project, and I basically wrote them a letter at, like the week before the show and said, it would be a pity for all these people that you've taken a Web Standards Project away from to have to come up and speak for you when you won't even give us the dignity of letting, you know, of giving us back domain over our own content which you wrongfully took from us and that worked so you basically you basically
2: said nice nice conference you got here and be ashamed if anything is to happen to it things burn (laughs) things burn
0: the only power that we had aside from being morally right was that we could all decide not to show up we did that we made that threat and they immediately released it within 24 hours Alistapart was back online at alistapart.com.
2: You know what else that happened to this, you know, having one property taken over when, you know, an acquisition happened? Jeffrey, recently you wrote about um, 5K, the 5K competition, right? Sure. Is that what happened to it? Well, for years, if you went to 5K.org, it redirected to Yahoo because I presume when Yahoo acquired acquired Flickr, Flickr, they must have got everything else that Stuart Butterfield owned.
0: Everything on his hard drive, I guess, but Did they think they owned a picture of his mom, too? What the hell? <laughs> yeah
2: 5k.org would That's redirect right. to to Yahoo because they owned
0: they owned Stuart Butterfield now. It still does. You have to go to the internet. you have to go to the wayback machine right to, to get it. And that's the other thing. Like we say, oh well, the Wayback Machine. People say, oh, well, that protects everything. No, it doesn't. It can't possibly. The level of it would have to be as deep as the existing web.
2: Yeah, they do an and amazing they job. All they the do, an amazing they job, do
0: an amazing job. Though. But of course, at some point, some Perl script that was on a site that's fifteen years old isn't going to be there, or some image is going to disappear, or and as we know, accessibility wasn't in most people's minds. Usability wasn't in most people's minds. So a button. That just said, you know, push here. That that didn't have an alt text and doesn't load, and you don't even know it's missing. I mean, like that's that's what you're dealing with. Yeah, you have no way of knowing. Even you know, there's so much broken stuff. And
2: and you know, to your point, Jeffrey, about how for a year or two, you, there was no alistapart.com under your control, and there was no Web Standards Project. That's kind of an uncomfortable truth as well about um, you know having your own website. The truth is, unless you know you've got a server in your kitchen that's serving up your website, uh, and you're you're doing, you know, DNS routing yourself, then you're always going to be relying on somebody, either, you know, both a web host, yes. and then a DNS, uh, you know, whoever you've registered the domain name with. And that seems a really sort of unwebby way. You think about all the best things about the web, or it's about its decentralized nature. And yet there's a lot that's still kind of centralized hosting not so much because that is you know theoretically possible you could actually literally host your own website but uh you know domain names that's you know that's kind of sewn up into into a racket um and yeah you are always going to be relying on on some third party unfortunately
1: (coughs) we should wrap this part of the show up i think um, if we want to spend a little bit of time, if we want to spend five or ten minutes talking about Mad Men, as I think we said that we would do, or Mad Max, possibly Mad, Mad Max. Max, or Furious Seven, or something like that, we should wrap up <laughs> the. We should wrap up this part of the show so that you know boring people can kind of get on with their day, PHP programmers, and we can then carry on talking about some stuff which is kind of you know off topic. Although there's nothing off topic on this particular podcast, yeah, because we've been
2: so on topic for the, the rest of the show, right?
1: I don't exactly. Hi-fi so talk. we should wrap things up. I will see you next week, Jeffrey, in New York
0: at the end of when I get back from uh, San Diego.
1: Yes, I will be there from the thirteenth from uh, for Smashing Conference, which is happening right on your doorstep. Right, 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 right. right. And we so – How is the, that the Smashing Conference?
0: Yeah, how are those guys?
1: I really like those guys. They put We're on very a very. Nice. I put on. I mean, we can talk about this on the record. Um, that they've. They do a very different show to a, uh, an event apart it's um the audience is very different i found, and um the style of event is uh is different i wouldn 't say that it's better in any way or um it's less or more friendly in any way, but the atmosphere mm. is different and so you do a good job certainly the um the i've been quite intrigued by how different the audience is because tell me
0: about that i'm interested
1: over recent years i think. The Event Apart audience, from my experience anyway, has got very, I don't know the best way of describing it, in-house. Lots yes. of people that come from, you know, sort of government or education or universities or, you know, large in-house corporates. Um, so the content and the way that things are, are, are pre- presented now uh an event apart that's why you have lots of you know practical takeaways they like that kind of stuff they like to to have some things that they can take away and go to their boss and say this is what i learned in san diego last week right um smashing conference hasn't got that audience it appears to more freelance more freelance and more agency um and therefore i think the, the the content can be a little bit um i'm trying to think of the best word a little bit freer i think so I wouldn't more, say it's be- more
0: inspirational, hand wavy. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that yeah, in a negative yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, I,
1: yeah. I wouldn't say that in a kind of design for design sake kind of way. Um, and they do do a very good job at curating, as good a job yeah. as I've seen at any conference. Um, in terms of um, you know, making sure that there's a narrative that goes through the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the That's atmosphere key. is different. And I did one, um, and I've done a couple in Europe and I did one in Los Angeles in Santa Monica a few weeks ago and it was a really good show. So I think that, you know, if you get a chance to pop in the door, um, I'm sure that they would make you very welcome.
2: The thing, the thing to, to know about Smashing Conf is that Vitaly is a lovely guy, but he loves yes. surprises and he loves, Springing surprises on the speakers, on the audience, on his co-workers. He's like, can you imagine, Jeffrey, if you were running an event apart and then like the night before the conference, you're like, I got this great idea. Everyone's going to dress up in costumes. Get me 10 costumes right now. Uh, everyone's going to pretend to
0: be in a band. There are speakers so, who would not like that at all.
1: <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> but you, do no you more. remember? The, I mean, we
1: are nostalgic. We, we are wallowing on the nostalgia wallowing train. Wallowing in nostalgia. Wallowing yeah. in Wallowing in nostalgia, but I likened the last Smashing Conf in L A. to being like the very first at media conference that the three of us were. Yes, at. Yes, yeah, I saw that. I saw that video
0: when um, I was while I was ignoring Jeremy's blog, I was watching your video. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> so, I did, I so I did. i that it was that. Anyway, we've we've kind of. I, guess, I will see you in a, in a couple of weeks in New York. That would be nice. Uh, we're going to go to the Comedy Cellar because we're going to go and see Alan Havey.
0: Who played uh, Dipsy Gypsy Doodle in uh, He Mad played
1: Man. Lou Avery in Mad Men and he's in what, the, what's, what's, the show? What's
0: the name of his cartoon character, though? His sort of Beetle Bailey like cartoon Scouts
1: character. Scouts Honor, how could you forget this?
0: Scouts Honour. Uh I'm
1: old. People can follow you on Twitter. You are at Zeldman, obviously, and they should follow Jeremy too, although probably everybody on already does.com. Twitter, and
2: Twitter at, at simply adaptio. gets copies. Twitter only gets copies of my thoughts.
1: Okay. Or you can follow me at Malarkey. of course the stuff and nonsense.co.uk to ask questions or subscribe mention the too. You can we've mentioned it about fourteen times.
0: You I know, but not in the closing.
1: on I want Twitter it in the closing at unfinishedbz. Or you can email me the old fashioned way he has at unfinished.bz. And we mustn't forget Shopify, who are helping to support this show right now.
2: What a podcast. So, uh, Mad Max.
1: (laughs) It's not Mad Max, it's Mad Men. Oh. Yeah. Did you listen to the episode that we did a couple of weeks ago with Alan Havey?
2: I did. Very good.
1: What a lovely fella.
2: Yeah, seems like a nice guy.
1: So, we actually had a blast uh, doing that particular episode. Um, But the secret news was that Jeffrey was going to be on that show and sadly couldn't be. Yeah. So... I and I I really, you know, I couldn't not do a podcast with couldn't do a podcast with Jeffrey and we, as not quickly at least mention the Mad Men finale because we've been talking about it for all these years and then the finale comes and then all of a sudden we don't get our opportunity to talk about it. So here we are.
2: I liked the finale. Yeah. There we go. All right. That was Mad Men. That was it. Uh, so Mad Max.
0: <laughs> I I I no. love how it was it was the most idealistic and the most cynical thing, at once.
2: Yeah, see, I think you can see it. You can see it like you can see the whole series. I think. I think some people look at Mad yes. Men and they see it like it's a manual, like, "Oh, this is how I should be running my business, right?" This, this, is, this no, is. No, no, right. no, nobody thinks be? that. I think. Exactly. Nobody say, thinks
0: that. I don't know, and we, you you can also watch I and see, it like was. this is a bunch no, of really. This it's is such pure a dysfunction. Thing. Yeah, it's alcoholic. like everything. It's total – I think it's saying, and there are some people who are, you know, that this – it makes may make the case that this kind of chaotic living is necessary for creativity to flourish. And almost like Don's genius is part and parcel with his inability to manage life on life's terms. Do you know what?
1: I have learned everything that I need to know about how to run my life from carry-on films – and okay. I've learned everything about how to run my business from Mad Men.
2: See what I mean? Some people are literally looking at Mad Men and seeing it as so.
0: As if you have women employees, they should uh, be ridiculed by male employees who talk, make jokes about pears. Seventy-five percent of my company is female. Right. I, I mean, you can't really the sexism in that show, like, and it's just revealing the sexism of the time, the like the brutal level of sexism, especially as. You know, they never let up the next to last episode where, uh, Joan, J- Joan and to these guys from McCann, and they're all like snickering like schoolboys, uh, because Joan's attractive, basically, because she has large breasts and they like, they can't get past that. They can't listen to what either woman is saying. It's like they're dismissing one woman because she's less attractive in their mind. And they're, and the other one, they just like, they all. Are fantasizing about having sex with and that's all they can do. And I'm like, was the world really like that? Jesus Christ. Of course, some people would say it's still like that. I don't think it is though. Not like that. I I wonder how McCann Erickson feel about being portrayed in quite that way. Wow. Jesus. Do they look awful? But, and then, and then, but that is where the commercial came from. That is where that commercial came from. And I suppose
1: the big question is, you know, it has to be done. I mean, that was the implication that it, that it was very had clear. There's, to do they
0: had it. characters were dressed similarly. I There's did see one, a tweet about that.: yeah. yeah, there was a woman with braids, and it's this basically, of course, it's open to interpretation. And then you go, oh, so does that mean, in spite of being a drunk and everything else, he somehow came back to McCann with this idea, they welcomed him back in, and does this mean now that he's actually taking care of his children? especially after their mothers died or is he still like pursuing suicidal waitresses? Like we don't know. Right. Is he, did he have this moment of clarity and now he's at peace with himself?
2: Yeah. I like that you, you you can read the ending, you know, multiple ways and you can, it's kind of like a Rorschach test because you, you, you let's assume what we're seeing is yes, Don Draper, you know, gets the idea for that ad, yeah when he's having this moment of you know Zen meditation, and you can read that as oh, that's isn't that wonderful? he like he achieved this <laughs> you know life's life's work, you know and he 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 came to know himself and him and he he is an an ad person, and that's that's he accepted you, that he accepted he's an who ad he man. is or you can see it as, oh, he had this beautiful moment, this 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 human connection, <laughs> and immediately he was able to I see that as a, as a way to sell sugar water right he's able to see that yeah. i can milk this um lovely human moment to sell a company's product to to people okay
0: Peter. i have to tell you a true story i was uh, before i did a lot of the stuff that you know now i i wrote fiction and i actually wrote 3 novels they were terrible and they never got published and that's okay mm-hmm. but i wrote them and and uh, the third one was the best and i was with my girlfriend carol taking a hike through the woods and we broke up. I forget why. I don't remember what she was upset about, but we we broke up and she started walking back down the mountain without me. And I stood there watching her and thinking this would be an incredible way for Sugar to break up with um <laughs> the Sugar was the name of the female character and I forget the guy, the Russ, I don't know. But I was like and I was like, "Oh my god. Oh my god. My girlfriend and I just broke up." And I'm turning it into this product. but this And I, like, stopped writing because I was like... And I know D.H. Lawrence did that, right? All Doris Lessing, they took, like... Taylor Swift. Up ...marriages and everything else and turned them into art. And I was like, I'd have to basically be using everyone in my life. And, and there's no guarantee I'd even be good. See, this is the right, thing... Taylor like Swift. To, This is an age-old question. To be a mediocre. Right? You know, it does, does suffering right?
2: justify great art? Like, does, does Picasso's Guernica justify the existence of the event of Guernica, right? Because if, if the only way you get no, with art that, is suffering, is that suffering worth it? And some people, you know, if talking about great music could only come from suffering, then that suffering, you know, had a purpose. That's one thing. But when it's,
0: yeah. Well, Tchaikovsky's suicidal despair right, is what gave us the uh, pathetique. So it was worth it for him then to kill himself.
2: This, so this is, the when comes, this, so this, this is the argument when it comes to art, right? It's, I don't think,
0: it, I think the argument is really, if Picasso beat his wife... But he made this great art. Is her suffering worth it? I think that's more what I'm talking about, right? Well, the question that like I had to think, would I exploit the people in my life? It wasn't about me suffering. Right. It was like, did I even engineer this breakup because I was stuck on a story point and I wanted a nice visual, a nice strong visual for a breakup and I got one. Right. Or was I, was I just tuning out the pain? Was I not really living my life authentically because I immediately jumped into my fiction world so that I wouldn't have to experience the pain of my girlfriend actually walking away from me? I mean, I don't know, but I was like, I can't do this. But in in the case of Don, in the
2: case of Don Draper, it isn't that he, you know, he turned a moment into a great novel or a fantastic painting or a great song. You know, he turned it into a commercial, and that's a different question. Oh, well, that here is a different question. Is do
1: we go because you, we're still talking about this commercial thirty more years later? So, what is the difference between a, a great act? We should, that we should has still be talking about. You know,
2: we're still talking about Guernica as well.
1: There's no difference. It's just a piece of work. It's it's no diff. There's no difference. Whatsoever. Wow! You can't wow! Look there's no difference between say-
2: selling Coca-Cola to someone and a, the Great American Novel.
1: You don't. You don't think that the power of creating something which changes the way that millions of people drink. I mean, okay, I know you're going to get on your kind of it's sugar water, it rots your teeth and everything else. But I think that's relevant. I think it's relevant. Power that has been exerted. It's like a genius thing that changes the way that people perceive the drink and buy the drink and created an industry. I could Godwin this
2: whole discussion right now if you want to talk about immense power.
1: Well, you see, immense power is actually Mad Max. Indeed. But we digress.
2: Well, not really. You, no. Because if you...
1: I don't think that you can look at these things in any kind of different way. I'm not suggesting wow. for a minute that a commercial is the same I'm, as great art. I'm, what I'm saying is you cannot say that that was not good work.
2: If its purpose was to sell Coca-Cola, then by definition it can't be good work.
0: Okay. Okay, Stop. <laughs> S- the swastika and all the Nazi regalia was brilliant graphic design. It was for pure evil, but it absolutely united the German people. And when people stood there, if you watch Triumph of the Will, it's masterful filmmaking. It's, right. it's some of the greatest filmmaking ever. And Hitchcock was looked at it, Wells looked at it. You can't look at a, at a filmmaker after 1938 who didn't get learn something from that piece of film which was designed to aggrandize Hitler and aggrandize the Superman, the Aryan Superman and Superwoman, right? It was all about the beautiful German youth who could do anything with their amazing bodies and following this brown-haired, brown-eyed leader for some reason, he was he was not uh, subject to his own rules about blonde hair, blue eyes, but That doesn't mean that it was bad graphic design. It was great graphic design. It was just used for evil. And it was, so I don't think you can say by definition a commercial for Coca Cola or a commercial for a cigarette or a commercial for anything is, is, uh, not great art or great commercial. You can say, it's, I don't like what it's used for. It's, I find it evil, but you know. You,
1: it's still great creative work. You, you make a is. very good
0: point, Jeff. Zero Dark 30, Zero Dark 30 was a, an amazing piece of filmmaking, yet it falsely justified the torture of prisoners, right? With no, who were detained without. Right, there were people who were detained. I'm not sure. You, as, I'm not sure the uh, film reads that way exactly, but I do like the way that you. have it, it does. They. They. I. It's, that, it's one I think that's few an interpretation of in the film that they changed. I think that's an
2: interpretation of it. But I do like that we're comparing okay. Don Draper to Lenny Riefenstahl. I think that's got to be a first, Uh and I like that.
0: And we're comparing the swastika to Coke. Yeah, which means yeah, we're, we're saying Don Draper is the Lenny graphic Riefenstahl. design, the Coca-Cola bottle right but we're right we're saying that Andre Lenny riff is one person
2: yeah
0: i like it so there's a product whether it's national socialism or coca-cola and then there's a genius who interprets that for the masses to get them behind it yes right that's that's what we're saying whether whether the thing is good or evil it, you can't you i don't think you can look you can at, you can I separate think, but that i think you can look the at the quality person. of you the work
2: i think it is quite okay to question Lenny Riefenstahl or Don Draper and ask them, you know, ask what kind of person are they that they think as long as, you know, a great graphic design is the result or a great film is the result, then it's okay to do it for a client like the Third Reich or Coca-Cola. That, that, that...
0: Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I I, I was just... uh when you said by definition if he did it for coca-cola it's not it's not a great piece of art i was just finding fault with that logic good good point well made
1: so we enjoyed the final season and the final episode
0: yes enjoy i i loved the whole thing but it's all so sad and depressing
1: i didn't find it depressing in the end apart from obviously betty's demise i found the whole thing quite it put a smile on my face at the very end, and I thought that it was excruciating in some places. And to see Don kind of taken apart in the way that he was, um, leading up to that kind of smile at the end, I thought was so brilliantly done. And it left me with a smile on my face. The whole thing, the the minute that he did the smile, and you hear the ding, which I assume is the idea happening as well as part of the meditation, and then they ran the the hilltop commercial. I that just left me with like the biggest smile on my face, far more than any finale that I've seen recently you know i didn't i didn't have a smile on my face when walter white died at the end of breaking bad you
0: know i didn't know that's what happened i haven't finished it but anyway i had a smile too and at the same time i was like jesus christ is this cynical i'm so glad that he didn't jump out the window i'm so glad that he didn't jump out the window i hope he will be a better father to his daughter now and his other kids it was hard to keep track I, like, I hoped maybe there's some redemption for him, but Jesus Christ, like, that this is the, this is the Satori, that he goes through this yeah. agony and the result is this manipulative commercial, which I don't think, I think people thought it was phony when it came out. I was a kid when that came out and I remember thinking it wasn't real. Like, I know it was a great commercial, but it was like, those weren't really hippies and the whole thing seemed gross and stupid to me. Do you know what I mean? That commercial
1: came out exactly the same year as my favorite commercial of all time, which you cannot object to, Jeremy, for the life of you. PG, PG tips. tips, Mr. Shifter.
0: Well, as you know, if you cannot no falling down the stairs, that sounds like a. Here's here, right back to this. Here's the question then: does, what's what's Mr. Shifter? <laughs>
2: does the suffering of apes justify great art or even great advertising?
1: Now that's a very, very good question because those chimpanzees did suffer throughout their lives from appearing in those commercials. But hey, what so, a campaign!
2: So I guess it was all worth it.
1: But I would know, but but I would say it was a brilliant campaign. But I would say, with the benefit of hindsight, that it that there could have been alternatives, and I think probably they didn't know at the time the suffering that those chimpanzees would uh, would endure throughout their lives. And I think had they had they have realised that with the benefit of hindsight, then they should probably have made a different decision. The fact is, is that we can all look back at things that happened 30, 40 years ago with our standards today or our knowledge today and think, oh, my God, that was just so terrible. But at the time, you know, the guys didn't know. And at the end of the day, there was some brilliant copywriting um, and, you know, wonderful art direction. And it was a great campaign. But no, would they make that campaign now with our values and our knowledge about chimpanzees? Of course. Of course we wouldn't.
0: I never saw it because I'm not British. But uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc is a 1928 silent film uh, based on the actual trial of Joan of Arc. And it was directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. It's considered one of the greatest films of all time. There's one moment in it. This, it was the, it was the most amazing use of a close up ever. There's this, uh, priest who's trying, who says he's going to help Joan of Arc give, he'll feed her the right answers so she won't be burned at the stake. And she's looking to him for it. And, uh, They ask the one question that's a trick question that's going to condemn her, and she looks at the priest, and he just moves his eyes ever so slightly. And up until that point, acting was always on the stage at a great distance. And so the idea that someone could just, an actor could just minutely move his eyes so that he's not making eye contact with you anymore, and the camera could record that, and that that would be a horrifying thing, like much more horrifying than seeing people killed or or mutilating, just... The guy who seemed like he was the friendly, benevolent father figure, the symbol of the church, betraying Joan of Arc by moving his eyes ever so slightly. It's an amazing film. But uh, the performance uh, of Joan um, was uh, – uh, Renee Falconetti uh, was the girlfriend of Carl Theodore Dreyer and they had an abusive uh, – he had an abusive relationship with her and apparently on set he was abusive toward her in ways that got real tears out of her and all this horrible stuff. And it's impossible knowing that to view the film the way you're supposed to view the film. If you just watch the film, it seems like the greatest piece of acting of all time. And you really feel for Joan of Arc. And you really do. But if you know that part of that performance was coaxed by psychological abuse... Right, so here we are again.
2: Yeah, can you can, you can you still enjoy it the same way? No, with that knowledge, can you can you still enjoy seeing the
0: piece? Can you justify Just, art? Yeah. this this piece of art that has had a positive influence on hundreds of thousands of people over like almost a hundred years, but it came out of this horrible thing. You wanted to talk about Mad Max.
2: Well, I think it ties I in. I have to
1: say, I had to say I was rather bored.
2: Okay, you're wrong. But
1: I went to see. I went to see uh, Fast and Furious 7 the week before I saw Mad Max and I gave Fast and Furious 7 about a four and a half out of five, which would have been like a nine and a half out of ten. I thought it was the best action film I have ever, ever seen. It was absolutely brilliant. Have you seen Furious 7? I have not. No. And, you know, I'm not usually the kind of guy that enjoys just, you know, road action fast car driving films. Um, but I absolutely loved it. And then everybody on Twitter said, just wait until you see Mad Max. It's just going to blow it out of the water. And I had huge expectations for Mad Max and I was rather bored.
2: So this is one of the things with Mad Max. It's, one of the, it's what, what James Box, my colleague at Clear Left, um, calls uh, an Ayers Rock experience because he says, if you've heard from people, oh, I went to Ayers Rock and it was the most spiritual thing I've ever done. And then you go there and you go, well, it's just a big rock, isn't it? Um, you're disappointed. Whereas if you go there thinking, well, it's a big rock in the desert, you're probably going to have the most amazing spiritual experience because you weren't expecting, you know, to have that at a a rock. And so the expectations um, will always be sort of in opposition to what you get. I went into not hearing too much. Well, here's the thing. I was like, I'd seen the trailer and I thought, yeah, it just looks like one, you know, big action Car chase thing, not really my thing, because I'm not into that kind of stuff. But then I started to hear that the film was A, really good, and B, really annoying men's rights activists. And I thought, oh, well, now I definitely want to see it. Um, but I didn't have huge expectations, uh, about it. I was still going and saying, you know, I hope it's good. Whereas then you're right, people did start to talk about it and say, it's amazing, it's fantastic. And so if you go in expecting it to be amazing and fantastic, then yeah, you, you may be going to be let down. So I do think it's a shame if you go in with ridiculously high expectations, then yes, it's going to be hard to meet them. Although I think Mad Max could potentially meet them because I think just about everything about it is is fantastic. As in the... The world building in it, the pace of it is unrelenting. And most importantly, and that's the thing that I think does tie it to Mad Men, Jeffrey, because you were talking about, you know, the representation of women in the 50s and 60s, as we saw on Mad Men. And, you know, I think, Jesus, that was that what it was like? Um, I think Mad Max could be something of a milestone, um, because it's really interesting and I think important in what it doesn't do what it doesn't do with the the women in the film they aren't simply there as tropes to be used to advance the plot i mean frankly max is not the main character in this film charlie's thrawn's character furiosa is the is the main character that in itself is is really interesting and it's a lot of the stuff that it doesn't do that 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 i find interesting the stuff that every other action movie every you know fast and furious or michael bay film is going to do by default when you have a woman on a screen you know and obviously completely failed the Bechdel test Mad Max is is really inverted on I mean, <laughs> what's it, the Bechdel test Mike? Bechdel test is uh, the Bechdel there's test? a couple of parts to it one are there two women in the film and there's a lot of films that simply fail at that first hurdle uh, two Jesus do Christ. the two women have a conversation and again uh, a lot of films fail would fail that test and three is that conversation about anything other than the main than a man you know the 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 main actor in the film and right.
0: Are they anything other than wife, mother? Yeah, something like
2: that. Having a conversation about something other than the, the the leading man. And it's pretty amazing how many films, you know, don't pass it. And it's not, you know, a foolproof test, but it is a, a nice little sort of a metric to go. You start to see things a bit differently when you start applying it. Um and Mad Max certainly, you know, would pass the Bechtel test with, with flying colors. Um, but there's, there's lots to it on that level. So on the one level, it's this, you know, really rollicking action film that, okay, maybe it's not as good an action film as Fast and Furious 7. I don't know. I haven't seen Fast and Furious 7. But that's kind of just the surface level. And it's an amazing surface level. Like, I think it's it's a great action movie. But underneath that, what it slowly cranks up throughout the film. By the
0: way, Alien, Aliens was that. Yeah, al- yeah, Alien for Aliens, very aliens yeah. was about, a, a about, all about women, uh, characters. Uh, yeah, although, you know, again. One of the interesting.
2: Yeah, and actually, I think aliens,
0: aliens would probably. It's about a woman that. rescuing a girl, and there were some, yeah. there were some male hunks in it, but they ended up getting, like, crushed or. Yeah, killed. I think aliens.
1: aliens would pass. Yeah, that's what, that's aliens, what I'm saying. Aliens,
0: aliens. Aliens. So, so okay. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So you
2: didn't miss everything in the mid '80s, Jeffrey. You you did get to see aliens. So I'm glad about that.
0: <laughs> oh, Alien! You uh, yeah, I, I saw some stuff. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. I saw Spike Lee, 1988. Spike Lee. Okay. Do good. great thing. I went anyway. back and saw everything else that he had done.
2: I think Mad Max is really, really good and really interesting for for. For those reasons, for the same reasons why mad, why mad men is interesting to see, you know, what attitudes towards women were like back in the 56s. Oh, I really hope that we've come on, uh, since those days. Mad Max, Fury Road kind of shows, well, what if we made films like this? What if we, what if we didn't have to you know, use the cliches and the tropes uh, that we'd normally apply to every single time there's a woman on screen in a film and has been for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so for that reason, it's
0: really interesting and really fun and really good. And George Romero made it because because he's not known for that at all. He's known for quite the opposite. And when he even made, uh, the witches of the witches of not East, the witches of Easter. Yeah, East. witches of Easter. That's right. That was, was like, George uh, Miller. Yeah, yeah. And it was abusive to like share. And, uh, and I think he was, it was basically a boys club with him and Jack Nicholson. And the women were treated as second class citizens. He's kind of a notorious sexist. So maybe he's become enlightened or
2: maybe Babe mellowed him out, you know, maybe that that pig was a good influence on him. And he made Babe. Yep. I wish they marketed Mad Max Fury Road as from the director of Babe and Babe 2, pig, pig in the, the City.
0: Woods. That would be great. And Happy Feet. He made Happy Feet. Well, so that makes him like Howard Hawks, a director who could do any genre. Yeah, pretty much. Western, hardboiled detective, noir, comedy, screwball comedy, all great.
1: Have you seen Paddington?
0: Yeah. No, is that, this is more English stuff. You have guys, to see Paddington. I sat on. A I don't plane even really go board. to the movies, guys. Everything's happening is happening on television now. There are these things called
1: iTunes, and you know you can buy these films or. No, I, I get that. I computer. get that.
0: It's not. It's not a problem. Of I have a great theater next door to me. It's not that. It's that. Mostly, what's happening, that's interesting, is happening on television now.
1: Well, I right. sat through I sat through a very long plane journey on the way back from Australia several weeks ago and oh, literally sat, sat there with an enormous smile on my face, laughing out loud at this Paddington film, which I thought was wonderful. Have you seen it? I, I
2: watched it on a plane as well, because that's where I see most movies these days, it seems, is on airplanes. I measure the, t- the travel time and, and how many films I get. You have through.
0: a rule about that. Hmm? And you have a rule about that. Yeah, yeah. You uh, have a rule about that.
2: Yeah, I would, so on airplanes, I
0: don't want to watch... You should it. tell the, the uh, listeners.
2: I want to watch some sort of mediocre films. I want to watch something that's just down the middle, because if it's too good, you kind of wish you hadn't watched on a plane. If it's too bad, you've watched a bad film. But no, with Paddington, I had heard it was good. In fact, I think what I had was the Air's Rock experience. I'd, I'd heard really good reviews, and everyone's saying, it's so funny, you're really going to love it. And so then when I saw it, I was like, eh, it's okay. So I probably had your experience with Mad Max, I had with Paddington.
1: I only watch Sandra Bullock films on a plane. In fact, but that means that's you a good to place see, for them. You've
0: got to see Gravity in a cinema. Actually, you can see t- Tomorrowland. Uh, I've
1: only seen Gravity on a thirteen-inch. Oh, you
0: haven't seen you can Gravity. See Tomorrowland you in a movie theater. Gravity.
1: So I want to. Oh, yeah, I watch uh, Miss Congeniality. I carry on my iPad just in case there is not a Sandra Bullock film on the in-flight entertainment system. So just so I don't miss out, it's a superstition. That's fine. I but but what it. about
0: you haven't seen? What Gravity? about Melissa McCarthy? You have to be able to see Melissa McCarthy on a you know what's best to like see uh Showtime and HBO and uh other ad, or whatever you have the star network whatever the f- they they have you in in your sad little country uh <laughs> sorry. The, you mean the BBC the BBC that's it uh, no the star it's not star network what is it the, you who have are the people stars. that are making um no not stars Sky. uh sky that's what i'm thinking of yeah the people who are who made uh who with showtime make um penny dreadful but you need to watch something like that like like watch all of penny dreadful on a plane that's great you know television you can keep going that way you don't have that terrible thing that happens where you're like a third of the way into the movie and then they land oh, oh no, but you judge it. You with see, television you can just go i you know what there's 20 minutes left that's a 20 i can sit through you know what so now i'll stop I'll stop watching. I
2: time it. So if I, well, if, if I, there's a film that I just don't care about, I'll make sure I'll start watching that in the last segment of the flight so that when Well,
0: yeah, we all do that. Yeah. Okay. But you can load up
1: enough for like a 12-hour flight onto an iPad mini or even TV series. I do this. And I I ignore the in-flight entertainment system because I've probably got the films that they're going to be showing on there anyway.
0: Every once in a while, there's something that you weren't going to see and it's worth seeing on a plane and only on a plane. So for that reason, I'll sometimes use it. I bring an iPad mini that's all stocked with stuff, but then... You know, I may go, oh, well, all right. Everyone says I should watch The Avengers or whatever. But there's nothing – it's all, it's all freaking comic book movies now.
1: I was really disappointed by the last Avengers film. I haven't seen the last one.
0: Because I don't care.
1: Ve- no, you see, the first one was very, very good. Uh, again, I had enormous expectations. And I tried to stay away from trailers and from any of the reviews. And I did catch a couple of reviews like the day before I saw the film saying, you know, actually – It's not as good as it could be. And I I came away feeling quite disappointed. Spider-Man
0: 2 with... um,
1: Andrew Garfield.
0: Dr. Octopus? Sam Raimi, Spider-Man 2. Oh, okay. With Dr. Octopus? Yeah, that was the last good superhero (laughs) movie, I think. After that, it's just been like, you know, better special effects. I don't know.
1: Jeremy, where do you stand on Guardians of the Galaxy?
2: That was good fun. You know, I got to see that on a plane. Here's, um, you guys, who cares? No, it's good. Why? It's good funny. You know, it's a weird, I was talking with Tom Coates about this thing that the, it's a film with, it's like the most good natured. It's got, a, it's heart, it's got heart, which is really an odd thing to say when people are getting killed left, right and center. But something about it, it's just, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's not, it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's hearts in the right place. It's fun. It's just a fun movie. But, you know, if I'd gone to see it in a cinema, would I have thought that? I don't know. It's because I saw it on a plane and was like, oh, that was the perfect uh, way to pass the time on that plane ride.
1: Well, I was talking about Guardians of the Galaxy with my friend Shane a few weeks ago, and he he's got some kids that are, you know, probably the most appropriate age for watching a film like that. I mean, you know, they're not forty something, like you know, like we are. And he said that he reckoned that it was this generation Star Wars.
2: I've heard that comparison and that, like the feeling, you know, coming out of the cinema is like that was so much fun. That the the fun of Star Wars, yeah. That there's, there's aspects to it where it has that same, uh, yeah, joie de vivre.
1: Talking of Star Wars, we haven't, we didn't have this Twitter exchange, but I sent you a link on Twitter a week or so ago. Mm. It might have even been this week about some toy cars that had been designed to be, represent the Star Wars characters. So there was one that looked like C-3PO and there was one that was, you know, almost like a beetle shape that was designed like R2-D2 or whatever. And I thought you'd really like those little toy cars. And you sent me some back some snarky remark about anthropomorphised, is that even a word, cigarettes. And I'm thinking, did you not have toy cars when you were a kid? What kind of childhood
0: did you have?
2: A childhood before I was aware of global warming, I think, was the kind of childhood
0: I had. Climate change. Yeah.
2: Uh you know, I saw Michael Johnson from uh Pixar speak. Well we had him speak MJ. at UX London a few but you MJ uh,
0: from Happy Cog? No, Michael Johnson MJ from MJ from Happy Cog.
2: Michael Johnson from Pixar. Two different
0: There's p- one at Pixar
2: too? Yeah, different people. And <laughs> okay. He was talking about the the creative process at Pixar and it was really interesting saying if this if a scene isn't working, um I'm trying to remember they 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 look at you know first they look at the 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 characters or the look scene if it's not something in the scene they look at the characters and see if there's something about the characters not working and if it's not the characters they look further down and say is it the world something in the world that just isn't right and i thought that was really interesting because it kind of explained to me why cars the pixar movie kind of sucks certainly if you compare it to the other pixar movies it's like there's just something fundamental about this idea of it's a world with anthropomorphized cars that just doesn't sit with me. Um, although I have heard, you know, kids apparently love it, but I just can't get to past the point that we're anthropomorphizing cars. And to me that does feel a bit like anthropomorphizing cigarettes or beer or whiskey or something. It's not it's there's there's nothing cute about Wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. What's wrong with whiskey now?
2: Um nothing. But you wouldn't anthropomorphize it. I mean whiskey hates it when you do that.
0: Anyway. Who has a deeper voice, whiskey or vodka? Whiskey. More gravelly. Anyway, my point was... Who sings? Which one sings?
1: Uh, vodka sings opera.
0: Yes, with tears in its eyes. Whereas whiskey sings the blues. Uh, or Sinatra.
1: Oh, there is that. What was your point, Jeremy?
0: Star
2: Wars cars. Not interested, because cars. Cars
1: you don't like coca-cola because advertising. I don't like coca-cola oh, appet- cuz no, I don't like out.
2: coca-cola coca coca-cola. I don't like advertising because advertising. I'm in the Bill Hicks school of thought on advertising.
0: So how should things be paid for?
2: That's a good question. But not by but not by some clockwork orange style propping open of the eyes and forcing people to watch crap.
1: I think that this is the perfect segue <laughs> into perhaps another podcast. <laughs>
2: Yeah, sure.